Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Behind the Setlist, the podcast where artists tell the stories about the songs they perform live. I'm Glenn Peoples from Billboard. I'm Jay Gilbert from Label Logic. In this episode, we talk to John Waite, the talented singer and songwriter with an incredible history that goes all the way back to the 70s. Yeah. How you doing, Glenn? Good. You? I'm doing great. I am just so thrilled with the conversation we had with John. It was great. It was great to talk to him, and he's an amazing storyteller on top of being a top-notch singer and songwriter, and what a career he's had. I don't think he gets the respect he deserves. I don't either. You know, his songs with the babies deserve so much more recognition than they got. Now, of course, his solo work from the 80s is what he's best known for, but he continues to write great songs to this day. Absolutely fantastic. Agreed. Coming up on the podcast, John is going to talk about how he approaches building a set list performing at the Grand Ole Opry with Alison Krauss and Vince Gill, which sounded like it was a career highlight, and the story behind his beautiful song, Bluebird Cafe. Ah, the Bluebird Cafe in Nashville. Have you ever been there? I lived in Nashville for a long time. I've been there many times. It's a fantastic place. So as a solo artist, John had 10 songs in the Billboard Hot 100, most from 85 to 87 and one from 95. How Can I Get By Without You? And his big hit, was Missing You, spent 24 weeks on the Hot 100 and reached number one in September of 1985. And according to Wikipedia, so you know it's true, mm-hmm. he, he bumped off Tina Turner from number one and later she covered Missing You. <laughs> but wait, there's more. You know, he had other songs nice to talk. reach the Hot 100, including Every Step of the Way, the song Tears, and my personal favorite, Change, And that song got a boost when it was featured on the soundtrack for the movie Vision Quest. Remember Vision Quest? I used to have a poster of Matthew Modine on my bedroom wall. Of course I remember it. John tends to play those songs in his live sets. He also sprinkles in a song or two from his supergroup Bad English from the 80s, early 90s. Bad English also had two members from Journey, guitarist Neil Schoen and drummer Dean Castronovo. Mm -hmm. And also in the band were two bandmates from The Babies, keyboardist Jonathan Kane, who was also a member of Journey, and bassist Ricky Phillips. Yeah, Ricky, who's now in Sticks. Bad English was not a one-hit wonder. They had six songs in the Billboard Hot 100. Uh, the best-known track, and the one that John Waite often still plays live, is When I See You Smile, because that was a number one hit in 1989. But the band also had a top five hit with Price of Love in 1990. So, you know, they only had two albums, uh, the self-titled debut in 89 and then Backlash in 91. And then years later in 2007, he made it on the Billboard Country Airplay chart with a duet with Alison Krauss, a beautiful duet, of his own song, Missing You. And according to Wikipedia, so you know it's true, because everything on Wikipedia is true, that song bumped off Tina Turner from the number one spot on Hot 100, and Tina Turner went on to record Missing You. Recorded by Roger Carter at the Doghouse Recording Studio in beautiful Woodland Hills, California, here is John Waite, Behind the Set List. upon a time we've got john Waite, who is vaccinated and caffeinated yeah that's right in that order 
Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> so we're we're going to start here today talking with John Waite uh, about uh, first off is uh, his history with uh, you know the the babies, his solo and bad English. Um, John, how did this all happen? You tell me. <laughs> I have no clue. It's just chance. A lot of my life has happened uh, just walking past the doorway or meeting somebody on a subway or in the middle of a field. I mean, a lot of it was just so natural. I don't think I ever shot for anything like an ambitious thing, apart from getting into art school. You know, I, I put a portfolio together to, you know, desperately get into art school. I really wanted to be there. Mm -hmm. But music, I just seemed to be working away with my head down and somebody walked in and something clicked, you know. Uh, it was never easy. It was always uphill. And the chances that came around came around uh, very infrequently. But more or less, I tripped up and staggered into uh, somebody else's world. <laughs> well, looking at your set list, there are cover tunes that you do from time to time. Yeah. Um, you know, there's the Dylan slash Hendrix all along the watchtower. Yeah. There's Led Zeppelin. Mm. Um, when you were younger, um, did those bands have a profound influence on you and make you want to perform? Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, Hendrix to me is still sort of like godlike. He's still, I've just finished a book, a room full of mirrors. That's, that's a very, very good book on him as a person and what happened to him as a kid and how he got out, got out of Seattle to Nashville, to New York City, the Chitlin Circuit, the whole thing. But I mean, I remember all music affected me very deeply from cowboy music, Ghost Riders in the Sky and all that stuff. Mm. Uh, Marty Robbins, Cowboys and Indians was represented pretty much by those guys, you know, um, the lonesome gunfighter, rock and roll figure, and um, what songs of his do you like to put in a set list? Well, I don't really put any of his in my, in my set list. I mean, there's, I mean, uh, I I couldn't sing like Marty Robbins to save my life. You know, he's got a real sort of fifty uh, style. Mm -hmm. um, but um, I, I like uh, picking up songs that that I we used to do "Ride on Pony" by Free. Just go into it. Uh, we do. Whenever You Come Around by Vince Gill. Mm -hmm. I did that years mm -hmm. ago and got to play it at the Opry with Alison Krauss as a duet. And Vince came out and played. Wow. You know, I nice. mean, these things, like I say, just happens. And um, Watchtower is just, it's a, it's a cross between two of my heroes. You know I mean? It's Bob Dylan's song made famous really by Jimi Hendrix and his interpretation of it. But uh, we just give it a good kick and we just like go in and, and it's probably like hyper folk, whereas Hendrix is obviously a, a, a wander into psychedelia. Yeah, I've seen you do that song two different ways. One more acoustically. Yeah. And it's it's beautiful, stripped down like that. Yeah. But then I've also seen you do it with the full band. Yeah. Where you turn it up. Do you have a preference? No, I mean, uh, we just did a gig on Sunday, which was the first gig for 15 months. Mm. And we were, back, we were backstage without a rehearsal. You know, it's like um, one of those things in the hotel room where you just run over the songs and say, you know, this is the key and this is the tempo. Don't let me down, you know. <laughs> be there, I'll be, I'll be in front of you. How did it go? It was great. But I, I turned, I t says to the drummer, I mean, I, I might just suddenly take off and want to do it electric. But we decided to do it acoustically. But I said, if we get the first chords in, then I decide to go kick it in. A lot of it, if it wasn't that informal and unplanned, it wouldn't be worth going. I think if you have a set list that you have to stick to and you're trying to sell product and it's like, hey, it's great to be here in, where is it? And it's written in front of your monitors, <laughs> you know? That just turns me off. At this point in my life, if I can't fly with it, um, I'm really not interested. It's the spontaneity that makes it kind of dangerous, you know, and therefore exciting. I have uh, kind of a favorite quote uh, from you yeah. uh, about writing that I wanted to uh, get your thoughts on. Uh, you said in an interview once, 
if you have six months to write something, you won't write anything. If yeah. you have six hours, yeah. you'll come up with something that's got two fists. Yeah. Can you talk about that for a well, second? Well, it's true. I mean, I, I am essentially extremely lazy when it comes to uh, songwriting. I keep a lot of uh, journals and I have limit lyrics pinned on the wall next to my bed or in the kitchen. I'll write it on the back of my hand or on my shirt cuff, a phrase, or I'll read something in a book and go, that's really good. And um, I'm just in awe of the process and, and literature and words. And um, unless I'm given a, a kind of an assignment, like we need an album by in the next six weeks, I'll give you one. I have a cassette player. Uh, a Radio Shack cassette player with a cassette in it with maybe 20 song ideas and it's me waking up in the middle of the night with a guitar on the bed or it's me after a glass of wine or it's singing it in, into the machine on the street and I don't really want to go there it's a tremendous emotional thing to commit to a song and you're going to reveal a lot about yourself if you're doing it the right way and it's not easy, it's not comfortable you know, and I'm not trying to share my my world with anybody else. I'm, I mean, when I have to, they're like messages, mm -hmm. message in a bowl. You know, it's like you're trying to communicate and um, it's very serious for that time. It's like a work of art. It's like a painting. It's like an album. It's like 12 songs or whatever. And it's the whole enchilada. You know, it's not something I do for kicks. It's uh, until I get going with the band. Mm -hmm. And then it's just very enjoyable. But you have to push me. You have to shove me into it. And then I'm sort of hell on wheels, you know. Is it a form of therapy? It's always therapy to say what you're sort of keeping inside you and to sing it. I think any singer-songwriter has saved gigantic amounts of psych psychiatric bills, uh if that's the right way of saying it. You don't need to go to a shrink if you've got an audience. Do you talk to the audience as an introduction? Do you talk about these songs? Uh, sometimes. Um, there's songs like Bluebird Cafe, which is it needs explaining. Because, mm -hmm. you know, it was about not being able to write a song with this guy and then giving up and going to a cafe for a beer at 12 I'd just written six songs in six days. He'd, he'd driven 300 miles to work with me and I felt so bad, you know. I couldn't get anything going. And then we went to this, the Crab Shack in Nashville and this beautiful Iranian girl bounced out of nowhere, this waitress, and there it was, you know. It was somebody's story. It was how did she get to Nashville? She was gonna go and play with a boyfriend at the Ace of Clubs. And my mind's working overtime, looking at her, thinking, what a beautiful, beautiful girl, full of life. And, you know, she's in love with her boyfriend. She's in love with singing at this club tonight. And it just, it was Bluebird Cafe. It's like every young girl that's had to make that trip to Nashville on a bus or on a plane or drive or hitchhike or whatever it has been. A very dangerous thing. You know, it's like a, a woman, a young girl out in the world for the first time who's so committed to to music she's going to wind up in nashville and the only break she could possibly get is going to sing on open mic night at at the bluebird mm -hmm. and that's a you know a major story in itself so i have to tell the audience about that before i sing the song it's a great story the bluebird is a wonderful place everybody in nashville plays there at some point yeah yeah i mean it's the only real gateway into nashville that isn't uh guarded by money yeah yeah it's yeah. It's, it's a very level playing field open mic nights all the time great get to hear songwriters yeah. every night yeah it's, awesome. it's, it's all that matters i mean that's the real that's the truth of country is that you would sing to strangers and they would talk to you about it you know it's like and that's what the bluebird is <laughs> Were you the one that created the set lists for the babies, Bad English, 
Were you the one that actually got the Sharpie out and... Well, yeah, sometimes. But, you know, it was like, all right, let's go. Who's got an idea? I mean, even now, it's like, what should we start with? And it's, you know, I'm I'm pretty... Um, you know, I'm, I'm, it's a collaborative. It's, yeah. Everything's collaborative in a band and songwriting and performance, everything, every single thing. And, uh, if, if the drummer wants to kick it off with an, a couple of acoustic songs so we can come in like a, a lion, two songs mm-hmm. in, it's like, sometimes it's a great idea. Yeah. We've done it in front of 10,000 people. We've done it in front of 10, but, um, like I say, we shake it up. So um, I would never take credit for the set list. We all talk about it. Do you ever mix it up on the fly? Oh, yeah. Sometimes, I mean, for some reason, I used to forget. Um, I used to be so confident up there about where it was going. <laughs> I'd skip a song. <laughs> and, you know, actually, once in Belgium, uh, we actually forgot to play Missing You, and isn't it time? And... Um, as we're going down into the basement after the show, the audience is going nuts. The drummer turns around and says, we didn't play Missing You. And we didn't play Isn't It Time. And we went like, oh, fuck. And we ran back <laughs> up and played those two songs and the place exploded. But, I mean, you just... The, the, each show is a different uh, experience and sometimes you don't need to be playing all the really major hits. You have a connection with the audience that's much deeper. Is there a plan to... Use a set list as a journey. There, there, peaks, no. there, valleys. Oh you, yeah, you plan like that to, yeah, to guide the listener, guide the crowd through. No, no, no. It's it's like you know where the hits are, mm-hmm. and that you know that's going to keep the the audience on its toes. Uh, but apart from that, it's like where where would you go after "Back of My Feet" again? You might go straight to "Imaginary Girl," which is a country song. It's got the same import and the same muscle but it's from left field. And I like to challenge the audience. I've seen bands come out and just play the hits mm-hmm. and it's the most boring thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, the audience might like it, but it's, it's not very stimulating. Yeah. You know, there's no real exchange. It's just business as usual, you know? Yeah. Yeah. This set list we're looking at, you opened with Downtown. You know, I love when a band comes out and starts with a slow song. It doesn't happen often. Yeah. Well, bands, when I was a kid, you know, bands like Free um, might come out and they've been drinking too much because back then everybody was getting high and drinking (laughs) before they showed The Who, you know, and they might come out and do a Ray Charles song, you know. Uh, They really would and just jam through it because having a great time backstage playing it. And they said, you know, I've seen Willie Nelson do it. Mm. Just come out and completely start with something else, with Merle Haggard. I saw him do that at the Opry. He came out with Merle, and Merle was like playing the violin. And they were singing this song about, and I pulled out of Texas. You know, obviously, it's kind of a a ribald kind of lyric, you know. But obviously, Willie and him were so stoned, they didn't care. And it was just funny. It was great. And then uh, Merle left the stage, and uh, Willie went into Whiskey River, and the whole audience leaned forward like six inches. It was like a wave, you know? And that has so much charm that, you know, you trust. The, I think the audience dig it that you trust them enough to play something obscure. Mm-hmm. I think there's a performance element in that and a trust and a conversation already uh, implicit in, in the performance. It's like we're going to do this because we feel good about it being here tonight. And I think everybody, you know, unless you got some arena rock fan that just really does want to hear the hits, you know? Mm -hmm. you have such a body of work i was just looking at the notes you know five albums with the babies um two albums with bad english 11 studio albums solo and two eps which we'll talk about do you ever go back and look for some of those maybe deeper tracks that maybe speak to you to add to the um well, no, I, you know, there's only so many things in the babies. I mean, there's a song called You that I really love that was off head first that everybody keeps asking for. It's a really well-written song for a young guy to write. I was only 23. But I look at that and think, you know, one of these days we're going to come out and just nail that. And the audience would remember it. It's a big song. Yeah. But I, I think when you've only got like 90 minutes, 
you you really you have to look at it like what were the biggest songs that the babies had if we're going to refer to that to to really pay respect to it there's only like four songs that we're really going to knock it out of the park and if you do those then there's maybe two really really big bad english songs that you can deliver that are going to fit with what you're doing now mm -hmm. and then the rest of it is the current uh, output plus the, the songs you might want to cover just throwing it out you know so you have to be somewhat sensible when it comes to making that kind of a set list yeah i you is my favorite song on uh head first it's such a beautiful song yeah the record company they didn't like it mm. yeah as usual you know <laughs> yeah so i noticed on the set list you know we talked about downtown from temple bar which is such a phenomenal uh, record. And that also had How Did I Get By Without You. Um, and then you, your second track that you went into was When I See You Smile um, from Bad English. Right. And what's that was a pretty big song. It's I, number one. But, yeah. You know, it's very unlikely, but it's such a sweet song. I mean, the originals, we didn't write that. That was Diane Warren. Uh, the, the A&R guy had stayed away from bad english it, he was he just knew he wasn't going to get anywhere and uh he was a great guy you know don grace and he was just a sweet person and um, he had this uh, suggestion of when i see you smile and i felt beholden to him i really did i felt like he'd done a great job uh getting us where we needed to go producers you know um and i said to the guys come on let's let's try it you know for don just to say thank you it's respectful mm -hmm. and then we, if it doesn't work we've got a great record and it worked i mean everybody was such a good player and we had such a, a laser focus on what the best parts of the songs were we couldn't fail we finished the track and looked at each other and went like oh god you know it's number one and um that was why we did when i see you smile yeah what a phenomenal band how how was that experience? Um, were there egos involved? Because oh, you're kidding me. We're you know Good. these are you know some legendary musicians. Yeah, I mean Neil was just. I mean Neil could play anything. In the dark, you know, uh, in the middle of the Sahara, you give him <laughs> like a, a a broom handle with a with a wire on it and get a song out of it. I mean he he lives uh, and breathes for the guitar. And Dean was great. You know, you, Dean was a kid then. He was like 23 and um, just nailed it, you know. Good singer, too. Yeah. Guy can tap dance, play the drums, piano, guitar. You know, he's multi-talented, that boy. He really is. Yeah. You threw a Vince Gill cover in this. Tell, mm. me, tell me about... Your relationship with Vince Gill, why you did that song? Well, uh, maybe 20 years ago, I went to the Paramount Theater, which is underneath, um, um, what's the big gig there? Uh, Madison Square Garden. And um, it, there's a, there was a show, there's a, like a, a, a theater underneath it called the Paramount, and Vince was playing. And uh, I went to see him play. Uh, I always liked country and I, I liked his guitar playing and uh, it was just modern country, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, he played Whenever You Come Around and I thought, what a beautiful song that is, you know, and uh, when it came time to record the figure in a landscape record, I couldn't resist it. I just did it. I did it in my own way. I mean, mm -hmm. there's chords missing and it's very simplified. But uh, it's the same song, and um, we we do that. We really do. I mean, it, it always brings the audience to a quiet place. You know, mm -hmm. it's a very intimate song. Let's talk about the covers that you do. You don't do a lot of covers, but you know, we talked a little bit about the Dylan slash Hendrix. Um, one of my favorite parts of the night is where you cover Led Zeppelin, which is not an easy task as a vocalist uh, to do. And it didn't sound like you were tuned down a half step. It just no. sounded like you just nailed it. Talk yeah. about your, uh, talk about your covers. Like for example, um, a whole lot of love. 
Well, we were on a TV show once. Um, I think it was in Florida. Um, oh, no, it was on the Eastern Seaboard, somewhere like Philadelphia. And this this girl interviewing us um, on the morning show said, you know, what are you going to play next? And it, she was making me laugh, and I was kind of <laughs> flirting with her. And I said, yeah, we're going to do a bunch of <laughs> Led Zeppelin songs. She says, oh, no. And I said, okay, we'll do some of, you know, my songs, but they might just sound like Led Zeppelin. And she cracked up laughing. And the guitar player said, let's do it. And so when we came back after commercial, we went straight into a whole lot of love. It was a joke. I mean, I, I, I know Robert because I, I met him through Alison Krauss, a great guy. And um, so maybe it was in the back of my head. But I think also there's that, that thing like you want to blow people's minds. You, you want to really surprise people. I mean, we come out raging with that at the end. Mm -hmm. And my voice is really open. And it's just like you really push that button with people. You say, look at this. I mean, Robert's a really great singer. Sure. But, um, I, you know, we don't try and ape what he's done. I mean, it's like, it's just fun. It's fun in a hard rock way. It's like you've had some ballads, you've got very dark songs, we've got some rock songs, we've got this, but fuck it, watch this. <laughs> and uh, we always have such a good time doing that. And at the end of it, we go into Let Me Love You from the Jeff Beck group. Mm -hmm. You're driving my poor heart crazy. You know, it's just a, a walk down memory lane for us, but it's where we came from as kids. So it's a great relief after powering through the set that you can have so much fun on the way out, you know? You like to put that in the encore? Yeah, yeah. that is the encore. And if, um, if they're still going nuts, we give them head first, you know? And that really kills them. On this set list, we're looking at you. You close with change, which is a great well, song yeah. with no, no, interesting we, story. Yeah, no, we, that came in. I was in uh, New York City, living on Seventy Second Street, and uh, I was trying to. I put the album together with uh, Ivan Kroll, who I just got to work with for about a year and a half. He'd worked with Iggy Pop; that was his guitar player, and he'd worked with the great Paddy Smith. He'd written uh, Dancing Barefoot. He was a great guy, European guy, Czech. We hit it off immediately. We were both kind of interested in, in art and books and, you know. And we had this album. It was pretty great. And uh, Change came in the mail one day. Holly Knight had written it and mm -hmm. done it with a band called Spider. Mm -hmm. And I loved the idea of it. It sounded like the babies, but it didn't. It sounded like wittier. It had more... Uh, irony in it and um i was looking for something like that that wasn't so like going to the top was about me and steve marriott and you know some of the songs had real storylines on that record and i wanted something that was going to be less confusing maybe or less demanding from the order just a flagship that you could put out there and say this is a great song da -da, and it has this meaning and um I tailored it. I, I reconstructed the song and wrote another verse for it and and cut it. And it was the right move. I mean, it was Holy Night is a really talented writer. But I had to sort of do my thing on it to make it me. But I can do that. I'm an arranger as well as a producer. So when I'm looking at something, I can negotiate the turns and sort of take it where I want it to be. But it uh, it worked very well, and the video was very good. Kurt Falkenberg III uh, shot the video, who also shot Missing You. And there's that thing from, there's a movie, a black and white movie, a murder mystery, a British thriller that had a tremendous cast of, I think Kirk Douglas is in it. A lot of people get killed, and it's like, and in the end... Uh, they all strip off their makeup. I think Kirk Douglas pulls his face off. It's just a mask. They're all doing characters. And that was uh, the reference for the, for the change video. That, uh, you know, uh, image, persona, message, uh, deception, whatever. But it, the, the video really did work and it was a big hit on MTV. And that saved my ass because the record company wasn't interested. They really didn't know what they were doing. But despite them, 
MTV picked it up and was playing it eight times a day. So MTV was just uh, so important to my to my life in the early 80s. The song In Dreams uh, was on Temple Bar, but it was also on the True Romance soundtrack in 93. Talk a little bit about In Dreams. How did that come about? Well, Jim Marza called me up. He'd been at EMI. He'd signed me to EMI, got me off Chrysalis. And um, he, he was always, he's always been a great uh, positive influence in my life. He managed me for quite a long time in Nashville. Great guy. Very, very, very musical guy. Savvy, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, he rang me up and said, do you want to write a song for this Tarantino movie? Tony Scott's directing it, and we need a song. Would you like to? And I just said, yeah. I wasn't doing anything. Um, uh, They sent me a a video cassette. That's how long ago it was. Mm -hmm. Of uh, Patricia Arquette, is it? And and, um, who's the guy? Oh, uh, Christian uh, Slater? Sounds about right. Really? No, it's not right. Christian. Well, this is sad. We're, we're down the street from Hollywood and we can't think of this. <laughs> yeah, I know. Pitiful. No, he was, right. I'm sorry about that. He's a good right. actor. But we know the movie. <laughs> yeah. So I was working with Mark Spiro. I was in LA. I was living in New York, but I was in LA working with my old friend Mark Spiro. And I said, do you fancy a crack at this? We could cut it. And he had a home studio, so we just started writing it. We, I, I, the same day, you know, I got the video cassette, mm-hmm. and I went over to Mark's. We watched it. It was the uh, scene in the um, in the diner where they go after she picks him up in a movie house, and um, it's playing in the back. But it was a very sweet thing, you know. I, I. I watched the movie a few times and I really fell in love with it. It was such a good movie. Everybody mm-hmm. in it is just shining. I'm very proud of being in it. But yeah, me and Mark just sat down, hit an air minor, and away it went. In my life, I've seen such things. It was about being bruised. Mm-hmm. And um, I used to tell this story on on stage that when when I was writing it with Mark, I was trying to think of a couple that are deep in it, you know, as that couple are in the movie, um, where would be the sexiest place in the house for a couple that are in love? And you could always say, um, it's the bedroom, but I think it's the kitchen, you know? I think when I was watching those two people eat pie and drink Cokes or whatever, it seemed there was an intimacy there that you wouldn't necessarily get in the bedroom. It was just them in an unvarnished world. Um, I actually said to the audience once that the sexiest place in a house was the kitchen. And somebody said, oh, no. And then I said, well, it depends what you like to eat. (laughs) And it brought the house down. But, I mean, the the intimacy of those two people in in the footage uh, was, was... it gave, it was the direction, mm-hmm. you know, people being hurt, uh, but feeling peace with their home, which is the other person. They've come home. Was this one of those situations where you had to write a song in six days and you didn't have yeah. six months? Yeah, it was like, snap out of it, let's go. I went, I, I actually jumped in a in a cab and, oh, I, know, I, drove, I was still driving. I drove over to Hollywood to meet Tony Scott. I sort of gate crashed his uh, press conference, whatever he was doing, press all, and and got to me. I just said, "What do you want? You know, why do you see it?" And he was a great guy. Tony was such a likable guy, a big personality. You know, I really liked him a bunch right off the bat. And I think he liked me. He kept looking at my boots. He was probably thinking about putting me in the movie. But it was like really, we just and I got it from him, the vibe. I went to make sure, and I went straight to Marks and wrote it in one day. And the demo is, in fact, the master. We were just making stuff up on the mic and keeping what we wanted. And we had the the acoustic version with Mark on guitar. And then uh, for the album, I think, we might have put drums into it at a later date. And Bob Clearmountain mixed it. I flew out to L.A. 
mm-hmm. and he mixed it, and uh, I flew back, and it went in the movie. Wow. Yeah. Does the audience get to hear any of that story when you play it? No. You introduce it? Well, apart from the, uh, you know, it depends what you like to eat. I mean, oh, I only said that once. I mean, it was it was too good to repeat, you know. <laughs> The song Missing You was mm. such a big song. And this particular set list, it's right in the middle. Yep. Um, do you move it around? Have you ever played it closer to the beginning of a show? I know you probably played it near the end or maybe for an encore. Uh, no, it's, uh, it's obviously the biggest song I've done. I mean, when I see you smiles, number one. And I've had number ones on radio charts and all over the world in mm-hmm. different places. You know, it's a number one, is a number one, but... But Missing You was number one uh, simultaneously. And everybody knows it. When we play that, everybody shuts up. It's like, you know, there's a sense of awe. And I, I want to get it. I don't want to play that card like saving it for the encore. And I don't want to open the show with it. It's just one of my songs. So it can go in the middle. And Bob's your uncle. You know, we love to do it. <laughs> I never get bored singing it. It's a beautiful, beautiful song. But in the middle, it has some dignity. If you save it for like your secret weapon, it means you've only really got one song. Yeah. And I just won't go there. I love the version you did with Alison Krauss. Yeah, that was lovely. Yeah, so beautiful, beautiful with the, the harmonies there. Yeah. And it didn't have the kind of missing you backup vocals. It had its own personality. And yeah. did you ever get to play that live with her? Yeah, we did it at the Opry. Um, Alison invited me to go and play at the Opry one night. And... Um, I, I almost swallowed my tongue. You know, it was wow. like it was like a dream come true. I mean, I was I've always adored country music and especially bluegrass. The writing is always at a very high level. The 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 stories inside the songs, you yeah. know, it's much more serious than rock and roll. It yeah. really is. And um, she said, "Yeah, next Tuesday, or whatever." And my band was in town cutting this record called Journey of a Heart. And um, I took my band onto the stage. I mean, it, it was being broadcast on the radio mm-hmm. and Alison, you know, and uh, it was great. I mean, this is, this is like a long, this is like, what, 10 years ago? The country hadn't popped and I had a black bass player and, you know, it was kind of like, it was a statement, but it was, they were really welcoming. It was. It blew my mind. It almost stopped me in my tracks. That, and uh, we did "Missing You," as as a and uh, then we did "Whenever You Come Around" with Vince Gill. It was just one of those nights that. It was. I can't remember feeling like that. Uh, since I was a kid, it was like Christmas or something. There was something that was so exciting and cool, and the future was in the present. It was like everything. All the roads I'd taken, I'd sort of, after Bad English, I actually started listening to a lot more country, and I always adored Hank Williams, uh, but I started to put country elements into the song without them being country, especially downtown. If you want to get dark, get country dark. You know, don't write about this rock and roll shit about, like, I'm, I'm on my Harley and there's a sheet of flames behind me and I'm looking for <laughs> hot chicks on life's highway. <laughs> and then, you know, go home and your mum makes your bed, you know. I, I, I know those people. The country shit is, like, way dark and almost suicidal. So uh, just to jump ahead, downtown was, was written uh, as a... It, I remember thinking, what would Hank do in mm-hmm. New York City? I remember looking out the window and thinking, I've got to write about my life right now. Because I was coming off the wheels. The wheels were coming off. It was a very dramatic life. So I tried to write in the country vein, but it was still rock and roll without it being mm-hmm. a, an obvious reference. Um, that song will break your heart. Well, it almost broke mine, but I wrote that with Glenn Burtnick. We had this old piano up at uh, Madison, uh, Madison Avenue at Sony Music. It's beating up old Steinway upright. They had cigarette burns on it and keys missing. It was completely out of tune. You should hear it when it's out of tune. It's beautiful. But it was it was really about heroin and and descent and stardom, the New York Dolls, Johnny Thunders dying, mm-hmm. uh, sunset, sunset somewhere on 14th Street as you're walking down. 
I mean, it's cinematic. Mm-hmm. See the omen on the Bowery, like the film, you know? Uh, take the night train to the stars. You can find me in the usual place inside the temple bar. I mean, that's just, you know. Yeah. I mean, if, you, if you're going to kick off the planet, that, that could be a, a great obituary, you know? It's like, I don't think I could write anything better than that in my life again. That was just, that was a bullseye, you know? And that's country music is dark, but it's also storytelling. And that's, Absolutely. That's what that was. Yeah, but I, I grew up with that. I mean, even with the babies, like one of the first songs I wrote was called Head Above the Waves, which was, in fact, uh, the B-side, never got released on an album, but it was the B-side of If You Got the Time, and it was about me and my childhood friend at 15, 16. I went to art school and, and entered a world of like... Uh, just an exciting, creative, wild world of painting and girls and literature and and dancing and playing in a band and this explosion of, of my senses. And my best friend got a straight job and disappeared. And then when he saw me, he was kind of offhand. He didn't want to be friends anymore. He decided to go on this straight path mm-hmm. and I'd gone like Roadrunner. You know, I was heading right towards the cliff and laughing. I was having a great time. But... uh but that was a story, you know, and, and like Run to Mexico on uh, one of the albums. I mean, it's like... Um, Head first. That, yeah, that's about killing somebody and getting in a car. It's like, like Thelma and Louise. You know, it was like, just, I'm out of here. A, a World in a Bottle was about drugs. It, and The Golden Mile was about an acid trip. So a lot of these songs were quite worldly, you know, mm-hmm. uh, but they all had stories. The better ones always had stories. Other than Vince Gill, what, what country songs would you put in a set list? Um, I haven't even thought about it. I'm careful about it because I don't want to look like I've gone country. Everybody's like playing country songs now, so I, I'm very careful about what I reference. Um, I'm so lonesome I could cry. Oh, you yeah. You do a yeah. beautiful... Well, yeah. yeah, but that's that's like the national anthem. I mean, that's that that's <laughs> that's like the, the, the highest note of any country song ever written. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the crypt of love. You can almost see Hank with a lucky strike and, you know, in the darkness mm-hmm. on a balcony or in a wood somewhere, you know, just in the quiet of the night. I'm so lonesome. I mean, it's just, I mean, that's high art, that song. That's like Walt Whitman uh, distilled into the most simplest of songs. But it's, it really is the 40s in America and the the fact there were no freeways. The world was so different, you know, Mm -hmm. and he's there in a nudie suit turning blue. You know, there's just something incredibly iconic about him and that song. It just belittles everything else that happens in country to me. Mm. One of the best ever, for sure. Let's let's talk about what you've been up to lately because some of your more recent recordings are are just some of the best music I think you've ever recorded and I think the reason behind that is you're you're exposed, you're vulnerable. It's just a lot of it is just you and an acoustic guitar. So, yeah. you know, we have Wooden Heart Volume 1, that's an EP, and then you followed that up with Wooden Heart Volume 2. And then more recently, you've combined those two and added new songs. So there's 23 tracks all together for Wooden Heart Acoustic Anthology. Yeah. Uh, recorded here at the world famous Doghouse. Yeah, the Doghouse, my favorite <laughs> studio. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. yeah. So hard to get good help. Um, so let, let's talk about um, those recordings. Uh, how did that come about? And are you enjoying it? Because it sure sounds like you are. Yeah, I am. I, I, about five or six years ago, me and Shane Fontaine got together. I had two Richard Thompson songs I always wanted to sing. A Heart Needs a Home is so mm, beautiful. So song. good. And I had two songs that I'd written in Nashville that were just laying around. And I, everybody had done Unplug Records. Everybody and their dog. And the dog's cousin. I mean, everybody had done these unplugged records and I always loved the acoustic and I always so wanted to make one. But I waited till the smoke had cleared and then me and Shane cut the four songs. We would have kept going, but he had a session to go to. It only took a day. And uh, 
I put it out and it was really popular. You know, it, it started to really move. And then we were doing these unplugged dates and I was able to sort of feel that they were connected to Wooden Heart. And uh, if it was up to me, I'd just do Wooden Heart dates. And about four years later, three years later, whenever, two years, we cut the second one. And that was an anthology of like uh, hits, like Isn't It Time, Missing You. Mm -hmm. But there was also Downtown and In God's Shadow. There was a really dark songs in there too. And, the, and it, it really surprised me. It was like, Jesus Christ, that's who I am. You know, you only get that feeling a few times in your life when you make a record. You look at it and go like, fuck, I got it right. Mm -hmm. That's my thumbprint. You know, nobody could do that. That's unique. That's me. And when I came back to release those two, because they went under the, the radar, really. They got reviewed and stuff, but they weren't very popular. They were, people used to fall over themselves to buy the stuff on gigs, but it never rang a bell with the press. And then I put some more songs together, like More, When You Were Mine, New York City Girl, and covered um, Bob Dylan's Not Dark Yet. And then if you put that as one, two, three with these tr other songs, these other tracks, it's something. It's, it's something that I didn't expect. It's, if you had to find out who I was, if I got run over by a truck tomorrow, or my chute didn't open, mm -hmm. or I just got killed, you know, whatever happens when you die. I mean, if you wanted to find out who I was, I would recommend Temple Bar mm -hmm. and Wooden Heart 1, 2, 3, because I can't, I, can't, I don't think I could be more honest without being phony. It would become some other kind of over over the top you know this is this is me talking into the world into the silence this is me so i can live with that that's that's what i came to do so you know there will probably be more wooden heart records because i love it so much but i think that collection is just about as good as i am yeah i don't see it as unplugged i see it as reimagined and and take downtown for example the original version seemed to be piano-based. This version, uh, Wooden Heart, is this beautiful acoustic guitar. Um, That's Shan. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. It's, it's phenomenal. Yeah. But it's, it's almost a different song. It takes yeah. you to a different place. I love how it's reimagined. Well, it's also had the hindsight of 20 years. You look back at Temple Bar and it's, you know, Mike Shipley produced that. And Jeff Golub's in there, Tony Beard's on drums, Shane Fontaine for the first time around playing guitar. It's a tremendous band. But I was writing the night before I went in the studio, like Price of My Tears, and then cutting the song. It was wow. like life was art, was life was art. There was no difference. There was no filter on it. It was absolutely about being in the moment. I sang... Uh, how did I get by without you with a hangover? And uh, I'm, on, I'm sitting on a stool singing this song. <laughs> and Mike Shipley's looking at me saying, I thought, I've got it, you know, but I had a very late night. And, uh, and it's a good vocal. You know, everything I could do to make that raw, I did. Uh, that's it. That's the story. I think, I think looking back, it was written on the piano, uh, beating up Steinway. And... Um, when Shane got his hands on it, it was like he could reshape the chords so they weren't necessarily piano chords. Mm -hmm. And uh, maybe it's angrier or more desolate when it's on the guitar and not so obvious because people go to the piano uh, for kind of pseudo emotion. It's always like, you know, ta-da! It's always <laughs> like arena rock bullshit, you know. But if you put it on the guitar... There's an honesty there. It goes back, you know, the blues is only a neighbor. And uh, the other neighbor on the other side is country music. If you keep it on the guitar, it's always going to be what it is. It's going to be truthful. Yeah. Talk a little bit about that beautiful cover art. Oh, yeah. Well, years ago, I, I used to just, well, I went to art school, you know, and I, when I'd come out of a gig, if somebody couldn't get in, or if somebody was a lifelong fan standing in the rain, I would stop and talk to them for a bit, and then I would sign their album, and I'd put a small 
kind of caricature of myself next to it so they got something special out of the evening. And it became one of those things since the babies, you know. And um, oh, maybe five years ago, I just went back to it. I thought it was a nice thing to do for somebody. And um, then I got phone calls, then I got emails, then I got people um, talking about it and it coming up on interviews on the radio. And I thought, wow. You know, so I started, I went back to painting, obviously, in the in lockdown. I really went back to it seriously. But at that point, I I started just doing these caricatures and they became more and more elaborate. So I put them up on the internet to sell. I thought, well, if my voice goes out, I'm going to start <laughs> heading back to art, you know. And um, huge success. I mean, it was like just hand over fist. I mean, sold a ridiculous amount. There was one point in Texas where Tim was running upstairs and I was doing these caricatures on these boards and he was running downstairs, giving them to the merch girls and they were selling them. Then he'd run back up and I'd be upstairs doing this. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was ridiculous, you know, but we couldn't sell them fast enough. So it's, uh, it's, you know, I'm going back to it, but I thought I w with it being such an organic thing, the, the record wooden heart, I thought it would be great. It was, I almost called it self portrait as, as like a, an ironic aside uh, to Dylan. I thought, you know, people will just, they won't like that. So I'll do it. You know, it will, it will just <laughs> shake things up. And then I thought, elf portrait. You know, I thought I'd put, like, ears on me. You know, like I'd be an elf. I just thought, anything to make people laugh. So it wasn't like, you know, and now my opus. You know, and uh, and it wound up, I did this, this portrait, and I looked at it, and I thought, wow, man. So we didn't sell that one. I kept it. And uh, it's stern. You know, it's a thoughtful thing. Mm -hmm. And the character is in, is in tumult. There's, like... Behind him is like this this shifting scene. And I thought, well, that's good. And it was great, you know. I mean, it's only happened a couple of months ago. I just woke up one morning and thought, that's what I'm going to do. And it's probably the picture that got me to do Wooden Heart 3. I looked at the picture and thought, album cover. And then why not do, you know, the lockdown can make you do some crazy stuff. And uh, <laughs> that's the craziest thing that's happened to me this year. Well... I like your early stuff before you went electric and sold out. Yeah, thank you, man. <laughs> Let's talk about 2020 and 2021 and what it was like having to be off the road for such a long time. Oh, man, I, I used to wake up and look for the corkscrew, you know. Um, I've actually been known to get out of bed and go straight to the fridge and look to see what kind of beer there's in there. I mean, it was like so bored. Ennui, the French call it. It's like just there's nothing. There was no energy. And I thought, honestly, I've been asked to, um, to write my memoirs like everybody's being asked to write their memoirs. And I actually gave that some thought for a while. And then uh, there's a movie coming up called The Hardware, which is a, a documentary on my life. That'll be out in about seven months. Major backing for that. Uh, but that kept me sort of from, you know, driving off a cliff or something. It was just so boring, so limiting, that when you took took all the air out of the room, you know, I, I thought I was going to, that, that cassette I told you about, mm -hmm. I thought I was just going to, like, make an album and just kill it, and it was going to be great. But you couldn't really go in a studio because people wouldn't want to work with anybody that wasn't wearing a mask or, like, in a, in a, you know, a one-piece suit that was airtight. You know, it was like, mm -hmm. I didn't fancy that at all. And I just can't exist like that. So I couldn't even go in the studio. But when things lightened up, then I started on the wooden heart thing. I just thought, you know, I got to go. You know, when you got to go, you got to go. I couldn't just sit on my hands. Um, but, you know, I mean, I've spent weeks just you know tv you know walking around the block uh eating with my girlfriend and then watching tv in bed you know and it was like and it was the same for everyone but i'm very lucky that i had balconies and santa monica it sort of wasn't in lockdown lockdown 
but it just about took the edge off me. It was terrible. I think it's been one of the worst years for everybody. What did you do to connect to your fans during that time? Wooden heart. That was what I. That was what I was, what I was doing. I, I felt I could do that and communicate with them in a way that could be done quickly, and it wasn't. Um, it was unexpected, mm-hmm. and the three album thing that was unexpected. Mm-hmm. But just having fun with things, you know, who's going to release a triple album these days on three CDs? You know, one's an EP. I mean, it's not overpriced, but it's like uh, it was it was from left field. But that, I think, the Wooden Heart thing pulled me through the other side of, of lockdown, the fans. But I was always on the Internet. I would always answer emails and be on Facebook. And I thought it was very important to have that exchange with people like answer something or a comment and uh i'm sure that somewhere around the world there was somebody in lockdown going like oh really you know and then they write back you know i think this thing about talking conversation having a point of view free speech i mean because the country was divided like never before last year and um you know if uh if you didn't like my opinion then I was prepared to have the discussion because that's what it's about. But some people were pretty radical to the mm-hmm. right, and that's the way it goes. Yeah. What's next? You have the documentary you just mentioned. Yeah. You've got some live dates I've been noticing yeah. uh, that are coming up. <laughs> I think uh, we're going out with uh, Neil Geraldo and, and Pat Benatar. We're doing some major gigs with those people. Neil's a great friend of mine. And um, we're doing that. And I'm looking to try and put together um, a Wooden Heart tour that's just Wooden Heart. Um, but we'll see. It looked like um, today I read the paper and it said there's been nobody died today, which was like, you know, it's like bring out your dead. It's like, you know, it's... It's like, wow, but it's really turning the corner. There's been an outbreak of an Indian strain in Europe, in Britain, that's really knocked it back. But 70% of the country over there and 70% of the country almost over here has been vaccinated. And that's caused this thing to screech to a halt. And there are some orangutans out there that don't want to get vaccinated, that don't give a fuck about anybody else and they're... You know, they think they're having a a go at free speech, but, you know, that's okay with me. I'm vaccinated. If it kills you, that's just your problem. I've I've done everything I can on the internet to to encourage people to get vaccinated because then you can have concerts, you can travel, you can be with your family. You don't have to wear a mask. You can go back to a life. How somebody can really be so outspoken about being vaccinated is, is a wonder to me. It really is. I just look at it and go like, really? But that's your, it's America, man. You can say whatever you want. Thank God. Are you excited to get back on stage? Yeah. The other day, Sunday was, was, um, it was like, we're, we're stood on the edge of the stage and it was like time to go. And I looked at everybody and it was like, well, what do we do now? It was like, I didn't know what to, I, you know, there's little things you forget, things that you've honed uh, into a craft when you go on stage. And I hadn't a clue. I was just talking to the audience and keeping it light and then would play a song and it would kill them. And then I would sort of think of something funny or I would be talking to somebody. I tried to do it, um, I, you know, pace myself physically. You know, I came back the next day. I went home. I couldn't sleep for like three hours. I think I finally slept about three o'clock. And I got home and I was okay. And then that night I kind of crashed out really early. But I woke up exhausted really tired and today's the first day I felt right it's a lot you know when you go on stage your adrenaline's pumping your heart's working double time you're focused every muscle in your body is going I mean my arms my ass my thighs my stomach everything hurt you know the next day because you you you're sort of you know you're squeezing the mic you're sort of like singing to the to the back row everything in your body and everything you are is push forward and I hadn't done it for 15 months and when I came off I felt pretty great but the next day it was like somebody hit me with a tire iron it was like uh 
It was the adrenaline pushing me through the show. Yeah. Do you want to tour the rest of the year, or do you, you want to take it easy coming out? Oh, no. If I could go, if I could play tonight, I'd be there. I think I'd, I'd play. With the Unplugged thing, you can play like five nights in a row. We've actually done six. And it, it isn't, and it, we're doing a whole lot of love, Unplugged. We're doing everything. It's just that it isn't that major loud thing. So you can play more shows, you know? Yeah. John, thank you so much for joining us. Thank uh, you so much. Talking with us. Fuck Such a pleasure. you, man. <laughs> <laughs> Love talking to you. Thank you for the stories. No, thank you. I appreciate the... Uh, it, was, it was a good interview. Thank you so much. Thank you. This has been Behind the Set List with Jay Gilbert and Glenn Peoples. Please subscribe to us at your favorite podcast place, Apple Spotify, Stitcher, Spreaker, whatever you want. YouTube, we're happy you're listening. Please leave comments only if they're good. Please share on Instagram or Facebook or, you know, pass the word around. <laughs>